10 million. It's kind of an arbitrary number. Frankly, this presentation's been done every year at reInvent. And the reason is because it's fundamental to the cloud and how the cloud operates. But I'm not happy with 10 million at all. So we're going to kind of raise the bar a little bit. It's kind of an Amazonian principle of ours. And uh, so we're going to go to 11 million today. I hope that's all right. <laughs> I'm told that these slides are not popular anymore. That biography slides simply aren't done much anymore, especially here in the United States. But I'm pretty vain, and I like the idea that my picture is going to be in this deck forever. And it will be, people get to see my face. So that's a, it's kind of a cool thing. Um, I'm a solutions architect, been doing this for about four years now. Essentially, in my job, I help customers architect for availability, for security, for cost optimization, for performance, and, of course, scalability as well. You. You have a product. It's a really good product. You're selling it on your website. And you may get a 1,000 visitors to this site every day, maybe thousands of visitors. You didn't count on the fact, though, that your kid's favorite YouTuber decided to feature your product in their vlog. Well, my daughter's going to be really happy I just used that word, by the way. I'll have to play this back for her letter here that I actually used it in a presentation. So what's happened now is your site needs to scale, and unfortunately, you didn't account for that. Well, after today, you're going to account for that. Now, I realize that not all of you need that type of instant scalability. Some of you have a more linear approach to the way you scale, and probably most of you have an approach like that, and that's great. You're also going to get a whole lot of value out of this as well, because the concepts in here are not necessarily things that have to be done quickly, but things that can also be done over time to prepare you for any sort of scaling events that you might have. I realize that you come from different uh, journeys or different, you know, some of you are, uh, are have been using AWS for years. Some of you may be just getting started, and this is good for all of you. I will tell you, though, that, you know, this is a, it's a 200-level course or a 200-level session, right? So, it's relatively high level, relatively basic. We're going to talk about some fundamental services. But if you've been using AWS for six years and know a lot about our services, it's probably not the right session for you. So how do you scale? Certainly is one way. It's Scaling your application is a really big topic, right? There's a lot of opinions on how to do it. I'm certainly going to talk about some of the patterns that we think here are rudimentary for doing this on AWS. But when I want to learn how to do something, usually the first thing I do is I pull up my favorite search engine, and I type it in, see what comes up. So let's do that. Let's type in scaling on AWS. And we're going to get over a million different results. I'm suggesting today that although Auto-scaling is going to be a destination for us at some point. This is not where you want to start. Auto-scaling sounds great. Let me just press that easy button. I can scale my application. 
It'd be great if it worked that way. Auto scaling is really easy to use and fundamental to scaling. We'll get there later. Okay. So what do we need to do? Well, first of all, let's briefly, and I mean very briefly, talk about some basics. This is probably not the first time you've seen this slide or the last time you're going to see this slide this week because this is really, really important. It's important for you to understand that AWS has built out a global infrastructure. We currently have 14 regions around the globe, 38 availability zones, and a commitment to expand that. We've already pre-announced another nine availability zones in four regions within the next year. And you'll certainly hear a lot more about that as the week progresses. If you look at the numbers inside of those regions, you'll notice that sometimes they have a two, sometimes they have a three. That refers to the number of availability zones that you have available to you to build out highly available and scalable architectures. It's not trivial, it's extremely important because these availability zones are individual physical locations within a region that are architected independently of each other. Separate redundant power, separate redundant internet, cooling, all the things that you would expect in a data center environment or a data center campus, but they're separated so that they can withstand the failure of each other. However, the one thing they share is they're connected over a high-speed, low-latency connection. You can get single-digit millisecond latency between the availability zones so that you can architect highly available applications. It used to be that for a highly available application, that meant I have something running in this rack and something running in this rack. Oh, if you were really ingenious, maybe you had a separate cage on the other side of the building. But now you have the ability to do that in different physical locations at virtually no additional cost. Totally awesome. Another global infrastructure map shows our 60 plus points of presence around the globe where you can d use to leverage two services, Route 53 and CloudFront, that enable you to get your content out to your end users at extremely low latency and do it globally and do it quickly. Talk more about CloudFront later. These buckets that you see here, it's funny, when I started four years ago, I think we had something like 13 services. Now we have services that fit all these different buckets here. And we're not obviously going to talk about them all, although they um, all can certainly be used in some respect to build out your highly available and scalable web application. I do want to focus on one thing in particular, though, what I think is probably the most important one, and that's here in the lower left corner, and that's solutions architects. I have a special affinity towards this because, well, that's me. Once again, my vanity showing, uh, showing through here. No, seriously, we, um, we're going to talk about services that fit into these buckets today. Again, just a subset of the ones that you've seen, but are going to be very important as we try to build out a scalable web application. We're not going to dive into scaling out your Hadoop cluster. Um, you know, we're not going to, uh, we're, we're specifically talking about or your data warehouse. We're spe specifically talking about web applications today. So those availability zones, they not only give you the ability to architect highly available applications, 
They've given us the ability to provide you services in which to architect highly available applications straight out of the box. In blue here, I've listed some of them. So what we've done is we have built these services and features to leverage these multi-availability zones so that simply by using them, you achieve high availability. If you look at the ones on the right-hand side there, those are services that we're going to talk about that allow you to leverage the concept of high availability and multiple availability zones with a little bit of effort on your part. All right. Got to build a web app. Starts day one. What does day one in your web application really look like? Well, it looks like one user. That's you, the application developer. And you've probably built out an architecture that looks something like this. Pretty basic. Got a single Amazon EC2 instance, a virtual server in the cloud. It's got a public IP address. You've set up a, uh, an entry in Route 53, our managed DNS server, or service, I should say, leveraging those 60-plus edge locations around the globe. And you got a web service running on your, uh, your instance, a database on there as well. And this is a fully functioning web stack. Might actually look familiar to some of you. But at some point, we need to start to scale. And one of the easiest things that you can do is get a bigger box. Really simple. Stop an instance, choose a different instance type, start it up, and now I'm running with completely new compute power, memory power, storage space, and everything. It's great. And we have a whole bunch of different instance families and instance types to choose from to meet whatever demand you have, whether it's high CPU, high I.O., high memory, GPU, whatever it might be. But you can only get so big. I mean, I can give you, a, a, you know, 128 cores. I can give you two terabytes of RAM. That's a pretty beefy web server. But still, I can only go so far. At some point, you're going to hit an endpoint. So we need to start to figure out what to do after we employ some of these, what we call vertical scaling. And you know, this, uh, this particular architecture of being able to scale vertically, this might actually get us to hundreds, maybe even thousands of users on this very simple existing web stack. But I've pointed out some inherent problems here. We have a number of single points of failure, um, with the exception of Route 53 that has these 60 edge locations around the globe. We've got a number, we have a number of things that we need to take care of here. So if we want to go beyond one user, I'm going to suggest one of the first things you want to do is break out that database from your web tier. And many of you are probably sitting here thinking, ah, I probably would have done that from the get-go. And that's perfectly fine. But instantly, this gives me some scalability because now I can scale my web tier separately from my data tier. They have different requirements. They don't need to scale the same. Why not separate them out? Scale them independently from each other. So you need to run a database, lots of options. On the left there, you can stick it on an EC2 instance and manage it yourself, probably like you're doing today if you're running in an on-premises environment. 
We also have fully managed databases that you can run. Amazon RDS, our relational database service. Managed Postgres, MariaDB, Microsoft SQL Server, Oracle, Amazon Aurora. DynamoDB, our managed NoSQL database. And Amazon Redshift, probably not being used for your web application, but worth mentioning here, it's our managed petabyte scale data warehousing platform. Let's talk a little bit more about Aurora. This is a service that, um, gosh, I think we launched it a year or two ago now. It's, um, it's becoming a very fast-growing service for us. And the reason that it is is because it's a heck of a lot cheaper than some of those traditional uh, uh, relational databases that you're used to running, those commercial databases. Um, it's very performant, um, and, uh, and it's got a lot of features that are really cool as far as scaling is concerned. Storage scaling. Automatic storage scaling. Gone are the days of having to provision the storage ahead of time. Pay for what I use, scale automatically up to 64 terabytes. 15 read replicas I can have for my Aurora database. Talk, I'm going to talk about read replicas a little later and how they fit into our scaling model. And fully MySQL compatible. If you're running an application that's MySQL 5.6 compatible, drop in compatibility with Aurora. I can even create Aurora read replicas from my, I mean, micro, uh, MySQL read replicas from my Aurora database. But we have a decision to make. I mentioned we've got relational data and we've got non-relational data stores. How do I choose? Well, some of you aren't going to like this, but I'm going to suggest that you start with a relational data store. And my evidence for why I think this is here. And it's interesting, as the years go by, I actually think that this, uh, this list is going to change because I think that NoSQL databases um, are actually something that might make some more sense to start with, especially when you talk about well-worn technology because you know, DynamoDB, for example, has been around for a long time now. But we still live in an environment where relational, if I want to scale a relational database, there's so much information out there. There's so many code samples and snippets and videos and information on how to make that happen. Clear patterns for scalability. The other thing is you're not going to break this relational data in your first 10 million users. It's not going to happen. Now, I do have a little asterisk in the bottom there, and that basically says, okay, listen, if you're doing something incredibly peculiar, or you have a massive amount of data, there might be a place for NoSQL in your web app on day one. All right, there's three of you out here right now that are saying, aha, he said massive. I've got a massive amount. Okay, well, for those three edge cases, all right, there might be a reason for you to use a NoSQL data store out of the box. I mean, if you've got an incredible amount of data or the workload is really data intensive, we could probably make an argument that you might want to start there. But there's still going to be a place for relational data store in your environment. It's not, uh, it's not an all or nothing uh, thing here. You can have both of them in your environment, whatever makes sense for your particular web app. Here's some additional reasons why you might need NoSQL. Low latency applications, metadata-driven sets, data sets. You're basically dealing with key value pairs here. 
I mean, if you're managing a leaderboard, for example, well, this might make sense for you. So I want to get to greater than 100 users. I am choosing to use a relational database service from Amazon. And again, out of the box, I can check a box that says, I want this database to exist in multiple availability zones. And I don't have to manage that. I get instant availability right out of the box. I can venture a guess that nobody in here is really differentiated by their ability to manage a database. So I don't differentiate myself either that way. I am going to use the relational database service so that Amazon will manage my backups, will manage my scale, will manage my, my availability, and that Amazon will manage my patching for me and just the overall management of that database and just give me a database endpoint and I can build my web app. You'll notice that in this diagram, I'm also showing you now the concept of multiple availability zones. I'm distributing my web tier between these two availability zones. I'm also putting that slave database, that, that replica for high, for, uh, for high availability in that other uh, availability zone. But I've also thrown in an elastic load balancer here. This is going to be really important too because I want to make sure that I distribute my load evenly between the the web instances that I've put here. More importantly, the elastic load balancer is highly available, out of the box. Can you run your own load balancer on EC2 inside of an availability zone? Absolutely. But you have to manage the, the load balancer at that point and manage the availability and the scalability of it. That elastic load balancer right there will scale automatically for you as well. The elastic load balancer, one of my favorite features of it, is the health checks that it performs against the underlying instances that are registered with the load balancer. If the load balancer determines that an instance is unhealthy, it's not going to send traffic to it. It's only going to send traffic to those that are actually healthy. The other feature that's going to really help you with scaling your web app with this elastic load balancer is the ability to offload and terminate your SSL on the load balancer. Anytime I can remove something from my web tier, it's a bonus for me. It's going to give me the ability to get much more uh, performance out of that web tier without having to terminate SSL on it. So let's pull that off, stick it on the load balancer, let it handle it, especially because it's a managed service and it's going to scale automatically for you. We recently announced a new member of the Elastic Load Balancer uh, fleet called the Application Load Balancer. So now you'll, you'll probably hear references to a classic load balancer, which refers to the one I just spoke of, and now an Application Load Balancer, which is, an, is a load balancer that operates at Layer 7 and allows me to do a number of things. One of the features that our customers were clamoring for especially was the content-based routing and the ability to now send different URIs to different instances in different parts of my web tier, which is awesome. WebSockets creating those long-time connections to my web tier as well. So the Elastic Load Balancer, the, the Application Load Balancer, this is what's going to give me the ability now to scale what we call horizontally. So 
I can use load balancing to scale horizontally. I can use different instance types to scale vertically, which is great. And these two pieces together are going to create that package that I'm looking for to help my web tier scale. This is also going to get us pretty far. I mean, we can get to thousands, maybe tens of thousands do it use, using these tools. But I want to get to hundreds of thousands of users. So I'm going to continue to use my load balancer. I might add additional instances to the load balancer. Maybe now I've got eight instances. Notice how they're split evenly amongst the different availability zones. But I'm also adding additional read replicas to my data tier. Amazon Aurora makes this really easy. This is MySQL as well. But I'm going to add these read replicas to take away the load off of that master database. I don't need my application going to the master for every read. Let it distribute that to these read replicas to basically lower that load and that impact on my database and allow me to scale. This is uh, scaling the data tier. As I scale, it's going to be really important, though, that I not only consider performance, but I also need to consider all the different cost implications as well. So we want to get a little more performant and a little more efficiency. So let's kind of clean this up a little bit. We're going to lighten the load. And when I talk about lightening the load, I mean taking more and more off of my web tier and off of my data tier. Introducing two services here, Amazon CloudFront and Amazon S3. And this is going to give us a ability to take all those static assets and get them off the web tier. There's no reason for them to exist there. I'm going to put them in a highly durable object store, front them with Amazon CloudFront, and get them distributed globally with very low latency. This is the same diagram. I've kind of simplified it a little bit to take, to get rid of some of the arrows, but this is what it would look like in a single availability zone fashion. But of course, I always want to architect for high availability. S3. S3 was architected for 11 nines of durability. 11 nines of durability. Can anybody even comprehend what that equates to? If you're storing 10,000 objects in S3, we're saying that we might lose one in 10 million years. It's pretty phenomenal. It's highly durable. Awesome for static assets. I'm only paying for what I'm using, so it's not something that I have to provision ahead of time. Infinitely scalable, and I can encrypt the data there. It's a great place to put all of that static content. And of course, I'm going to front that with CloudFront to get that out to my edge locations. Notice that I said static content earlier. CloudFront also is great for dynamic content. I can create TTLs as short as zero. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want every request coming back to my origin to grab that content? Because CloudFront 
actually optimizes the connection to the origin and gets that dynamic content out to your end users with that same low latency. The graph on top there is essentially showing you if I'm not using CDN, I've got greater response times and, and greater load on the server. But if I use the CDN, and, and especially getting that content off of uh, to S3 as well, I've now decreased my server load tremendously and created a better experience for my customers. This is going to enhance my ability to scale. Let's shift some more load around. I'm introducing Amazon ElastiCache and Amazon DynamoDB. ElastiCache. Well, let's actually, let's go with DynamoDB first. DynamoDB. I'm going to take my session state data, send it off to DynamoDB. I'm going to create a stateless application. If I can remove the session state from my web tier, it's going to greatly increase my ability to scale while maintaining a positive user experience. Amazon DynamoDB is our managed NoSQL database. You can provision the level of throughput with DynamoDB. You actually can provision the reads and the writes separately from each other. How cool is that? I get to determine how much performance I need to get tell them how much I want, and have that performance. I'm also getting single-digit millisecond latency, low single-digit millisecond latency, consistently. It's a key-value store. We also support JSON, items up to 400 KB. It's a very powerful uh, data store and also highly available right out of the box. Amazon ElastiCache. Managed Memcached D and Redis. Managed. That means that you don't have to manage these clusters yourself. With Redis, we even have highly available architectures leveraging those multi-availability zones that you can configure. Self-healing. We manage the clusters. So if nodes are not performing, we'll replace them for you. I want to use this in my web stack to get my high access queries sitting off of my data tier. I don't need to keep going back to the data tier for the same queries over and over again. I'm going to store them in this cache. Better user experience, better ability to scale. Here I'm showing you that CloudFront is now going to go to my elastic load balancer and now start serving that dynamic content as well. I'm also going to send those queries from my data tier into ElastiCache and I'm going to uh, offload my session state data to DynamoDB. Great. Our Environment's a little more lightweight now. We can now go back to the beginning of the talk. We can talk more about me. No, I'm kidding. We're going to talk about auto-scaling. Yay! Hooray for auto-scaling. We finally got there. So 
Auto scaling. Automatic. It's auto. That's the best part, right? You can scale without getting that call at 3 in the morning saying that, hey, you have a bad customer experience and you need to actually do something about it. You define how big you want your environment to get. You define what it is that's going to trigger that event. You're using CloudWatch, our uh, monitoring service, to determine when you want to scale. Because we don't know. You might want to scale because CPU utilization of your instances have got, has gotten to a certain point. You might want to scale because queue depth has gotten to a certain point. Maybe there's something specific in your application that you want to scale on, and you want to send a custom metric into CloudWatch and scale upon that. You have the ability to do that as well. Typical weekly traffic to Amazon.com. Peaks and valleys, right? People are buying during the day. People are hopefully sleeping at night. If we wanted to provision capacity to meet this demand, we'd probably provision it there, right? We want to make sure that we always have enough capacity to meet the demands of our customers, so we'd provision it there. How about this? This might look like something that just happened, right? A couple of really large peaks there at the far right. Maybe Black Friday, maybe Cyber Monday. If we needed to provision for this capacity, that would be a lot of waste. We don't want to do that. Wouldn't it be nice if we could always provision the level of capacity that we needed to meet the demands of our customers? Just-in-time provisioning. That's what auto-scaling lets you do. No more over-provisioning of resources. So here's our architecture. I apologize for all the lines. It makes it look a little bit messy, but it's important. It's basically just showing my web tier, hitting the read replicas and hitting the databases and hitting the data cache and whatnot. But you'll notice I've now created a white dotted line around my web tier and my different availability zones. And that's my auto-scaling group. In fact, right now you'll notice I actually have two auto-scaling groups, one in each availability zone, and frankly, I don't like that. I want my auto-scaling group to span my availability zones. I have no reason for adding instances to one availability zone and not another. I want to do this in parallel. It's great for scalability and great for availability as well. So now, when my web tier when CloudWatch monitors my elastic load balancer and says, hmm, I'm noticing that the average CPU utilization of Joel's web tier has gotten to 80% and it's been like that for five minutes, I'm going to add additional capacity. Maybe I'm adding a, a certain number of instances. Maybe I'm adding a percentage of instances. It's also important that for every scale-up policy that we have, got to have a scale-down policy. Well, you don't have to have it. We're happy to take all your money, but I'm suggesting that to optimize for cost and to always have just the right number of instances to match your demand, you want to have a scaled-down policy as well. Auto-scaling is great. Love the word auto. Anything we can do to increase the automation of our environment is going to be beneficial. And... Auto-scaling is just one piece of that. We have a number of application management solutions that help you automate your environment as well. 
These are some of them here. Uh, Notice the continuum. Convenience on one end, control on the other. And you're going to find that you might need a little bit of each of these, potentially. It's, again, not a one-size-fits-all. You can leverage all of these if it makes sense for your particular application and architecture. Amazon Elastic Beanstalk, super simple. Point the service to my application code, define some parameters about how big I want my environment to get, and AWS will create the environment that's necessary to run the application for you. It's great. Very easy provisioning tool. Makes it very easy for deployments and very convenient. AWS OpsWorks. I define my application in layers. I use chef recipes to manage those layers. Amazon provides you with a bunch of of chef recipes right out of the box. You can build your own custom recipes as well and use those to manage your OpsWorks environment. Gives you a little bit more control, maybe a little less convenience. If you're a uh, an avid user of Chef, I encourage you to take a look at that. Cloud formation, probably from a automation standpoint, probably the most control that you can possibly get is with cloud formation because now I get to create a templatized picture of my environment, a JSON formatted template where I define all of my resources and my parameters and everything that I want to run my stack so that I can launch my stack with this template, and I can reproduce it very easily. I can move it to different regions even. If I want to update the stack, I simply create an update to the stack and tell it to update, and I get new resources in my application environment. Very repeatable. Um, But it's, uh, be honest, it's not easy to learn cloud formation. It takes a while. It's a little bit of a beast. But if you want a lot of control, I encourage you to take a look at that as well. And then Amazon EC2, right? You can run all this on your own. You don't need to use any management tools at all. But when it comes to any managed service, generally speaking, we're doing something in response to something that you have asked us for because you're not in the business of managing this stuff. You're in the business of selling widgets or developing applications. You're not in the business of managing this stuff. So anytime you can offload that to a managed service, you really ought to take a look at that. We also have a whole suite of application deployment tools. Code deploy, code commit, code pipeline. Code deploy, for example, is a great way to deploy your code to a fleet of EC2 instances. It's it's a great deployment mechanism whether or not you're doing rolling updates or blue-green deployments. You can also point this to an auto-scaling group so that you can update your application at the same time and not have to you know, update different components at different, at different uh, times. You can use this with Chef. You can use it with Pup, Puppet. You can use it with Ansible, whatever your favorite application tools are. So we want to get to a point where we can get now over a half a million users. And as we start to get this big, Monitoring and logging, although always very important, certainly becomes even more important at this point because the scale of our application is going to make it a lot more difficult. Don't build these tools yourself. There's plenty of AWS tools and AWS partners out in the expo hall that will be glad to help you out 
with all of your monitoring metrics and logging needs. And you need to attack this from a lot of different places. There's a lot of components that go into monitoring and logging. And we've provided you with a lot of that out of the box. For example, you can leverage ELB logging and VPC flow logging and S3 bucket logging and CloudFront logging. There's CloudWatch logs. You can even send your application logs to CloudFront logs and, and trigger events based on that to, you know, to, to do something. It's, it, there's a lot of functionality you can get inherently in AWS. And then you might want to leverage tools um, outside of AWS to visualize the logs. Um, you know, maybe you're comfortable building out your Elk stack to do the visualization. Maybe you want to use one of our partners out in the expo hall. But again, there's lots of different types of metrics that you want to collect. Collect them at the host. Collect aggregate metrics, right? Get, figure out what all my instances are doing. You got to an analyze the logs to figure out, you know, really what's going on within your application. And I think the one that gets overlooked a lot is the one on the bottom right. Like, it's great if everything looks great from the inside. I'm logging and monitoring, and everything's great. Low CPU, low this, application's performing great, but you know what? My users can't access the app. I need to know what that looks like from the outside. This, this particular screenshot comes from uh, Pingdom, where it's basically just trying to figure out is the what the application looks like from the outside. There's still a lot more that we can do. SOA. What is SOA? Well, I go to my favorite search engine again. I'm going to type in SOA. It's going to return, once again, a lot of different results. I'm going to suggest that this is not where we want to start. Great show, by the way, but still not where we want to start. But in this particular case, this is where we want to start. So what is service-oriented architectures? Well, this is our ability to separate the components of our application even further. I don't need my web stack doing a bunch of different things. I need it doing one thing and doing it well. I want to take and distribute the activities that that web and app tier need to do out into different tiers of my application. It's going to give me greater flexibility to scale because these components have different scaling needs. Here's some examples of how you might be able to do some SOAing, if you will, on AWS using some of our application tools, whether it's searching or queuing or emailing or notifying or transcoding. Queuing, for example, the easiest way here to pass distributed, distributed messages between the different tiers of your application so that you can have different tiers of your application doing different things. It doesn't make any sense for me to build out an application tier and have, I don't know, uh, it taking orders and emailing confirmations to my users and submitting messages to, the to do inventory tracking. I want to separate all that into different tiers of my application and scale them independently of each other. The queue is going to allow me to do that, right? Because I can... I can take an order, have a message put in a queue, and then have all the different components of my application that need to act on that order, pull the message off the queue, and perform an action. And then I can scale those tiers independently of each other.
Lambda, AWS Lambda. This is a service that we announced a couple years ago. I think it went GA maybe last year. And I, I'm, I'm very excited to be able to say this because I didn't think I'd get to hop on the bandwagon in my session today, but serverless. I think that's like the theme of the conference this year, serverless architectures. Um, if you haven't heard it yet, you're going to hear a lot about it, but Lambda creating a serverless architecture to uh, to allow me to get something take to get something done without having to actually build out the infrastructure to make it happen. And Lambda's kind of changed the way that we think about service-oriented architectures. It's essentially event-driven computing. So now I can have an event that occurs. In my last example, maybe an order comes in, and now Lambda can actually execute some code as soon as that order comes in. JavaScript, Java, Python code. Very, uh, very powerful. And it's managed. What does that mean? Highly available out of the box. Loose coupling sets you free. The more you decouple your architecture, the more free you're going to be. Design everything as a black box. Let them scale independently of each other and favor those services that have the built-in redundancy and scalability built in. Don't build it yourself. It's not worth it. You're going to find that this is much more cost-effective and performant for you to do it this way. All right, we're getting somewhere. We're getting to the point where we can start to think about supporting over a million users. And to get there, we're going to, you know, kind of need a lot of what we've already started, right? Multi-availability zone, elastic load balancing, scaling. We're, we're, we, we've moved our caching off our DB. We've got the session state. This is great. Our architecture probably looks, you know, something like this. Uh, now, I'm only showing a single availability zone here because of space constraints on the slide, but it's important to note that this architecture would absolutely encompass multiple availability zones. But notice how I've got like a, I, I've even separated a new worker tier, right, with a, with a, a load balancer that's actually operating as an internal load balancer. That's not even a public-facing load balancer there in my worker tier. I can load balance intern, internal-facing uh, tiers of my application that may have a job to do. But notice I've thrown in the simple email service, Lambda, queuing, DynamoDB, and of course CloudWatch, right? I want to monitor all this as well. So what are our next big steps? What do we got to think about to kind of get to the point where we can get to our 10 million users? Well, we want to start to think about some issues that might occur. When we start to get over 5 million users, the constraints on the database tier, I mean, we've got a lot we can do with Aurora, right? We've got the ability to, you know, create 15 read replicas. That's that's huge, but there's some things that we might want to consider. With our relational data, we can start thinking about federation, sharding, and moving some of that functionality off of our relational data store and into something like DynamoDB. Federation. 
splitting up your database based on function or purpose. You know, rather than having a forums table and a users table and a products table inside of a single database, I can separate those into different databases. Just create a users database. Create a products database. This is something that we call federation, and, and you have the ability to do that to, again, help lighten the load on your data tier and distribute your, uh, your resources out more and give you the ability to scale them independently of each other. Uh, does it require a little bit of application rework? Potentially, yes. But the other thing, too, and it's important to note there, it, it essentially delays sharding or, the, or going to NoSQL, which are, I would consider to be a little bit more of a disruptive experience. Let's go into sharding. Sharding now is, and you can, you can use sharding again with federation, but if we look at like our user table, for example, sharding would have me now take my user's database and create separate databases for different parts of my users, you know, maybe A through L and M through Z, for example. It's a little more difficult to manage, requires some application tuning on your part, but still is a tool that we can employ to lighten the load on our data tier and spread out that load more evenly. And then, of course, starting to think about how much data is actually in my relational data tier that isn't even relational? Does it make sense to start breaking that out and moving it into a NoSQL data tier? If you've got things like simple key value stores or leaderboards or uh, lists, you know, you've got some hot tables maybe, then that's a good time to start thinking about taking some of that out of your relational data store and sticking it in a, in a NoSQL. Why not make it a managed NoSQL data store like DynamoDB as well? Get that availability right out of the box. All right, very quick review. Multi-AZ, self-scaling services, building in the redundancy at every level. Seriously, start with relational data stores. Caching, anytime you can cache, it's a benefit. We're gonna cache the data tier, we're gonna cache on uh, CloudFront as well. And automation, if you're doing anything manually, you've got a problem with your scalability mechanism, right? You do not want to be getting those calls at three in the morning. You want to know, go to sleep knowing that regardless of how many customers are hitting your site, they are going to have a positive experience because you've built in the automation at every level. Monitoring, logging, metrics, service-oriented architectures. Don't reinvent the wheel. Focus on what you're really good at and what differentiates you as a customer or as a consumer, building high-quality web apps and selling widgets. So I think with this, we can probably get to 11 million users, 10 million users and beyond, really to infinity. I think that, uh, you know, at this point, you're like, okay, 11 million is great, but what if I wanted to go beyond that? Of course, it's a lot of the same stuff. I mean, you may actually need to start building some custom solutions at that point. Um, there's a lot of fine tuning that you're gonna need to do with your application. Uh, don't go to sleep. You know, I mentioned that Lambda is a relatively new service for AWS and has kind of helped us out in our ability to create service-oriented architectures, but 
you know, if you've been sleeping for the last couple of years, you, that might have passed you by. And uh, pay attention to, you know, the latest trends, what's going on. There's constantly things coming out that are going to help you with creating these service-oriented architectures. Um, you know, we, uh, even at AWS, we iterate very fast. Um, we, uh, you, you'll, you'll notice that even this week we're going to launch a, a number of different products and features. Last week alone, we launched over 20 different new services or features. Just last week alone. And, and you know, so monitor uh, Jeff Barr's, you know, AWS blog or AWS, the, the, I think we have a What's New blog, you know. See what's, uh, see what's out there because there's always things that are going to help you out. Um, for example, EC2 container service. I threw that on here. Um, you know, that's a, a, a managed service that allows you to run your Docker containers inside of AWS and has, again, offered the ability now to uh, enhance your ability to scale your application by creating a virtualization layer now at the application layer, which is totally awesome. As I mentioned, lots of things to read. Um, I didn't put the blog on here. I probably should have. But um, you'll notice they all start with aws.amazon.com. Lots of places to start. The free tier, for those of you that haven't yet even dipped your foot in the pool, I encourage you to uh, use the free tier, and you can do a lot of things without actually incurring a single dime. And the forums for support and, uh, and uh, information. And of course, talk to your account manager and your solutions architect. And my last opportunity to get my picture in there. Thank you very much.